Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. On December 4th, 2016, a man named Edgar Welch left his home in Salisbury, North Carolina, and he drove north up to D.C. He was going to D.C. to find the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Joint because he had heard online that at the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Joint, they have a basement, and in the basement, they were running a pedophile ring that was led by Hillary Clinton. Now, this, is, this got obviously awkward and, and strange for everybody involved as he rolled up to the pizza joint with an AR-15, a 38 pistol, and a knife in his hand, and he walked in the front door to bust up the pedophile ring that he had heard was in the basement. He got in there, the wait staff started to flee the building, they started warming customers, people started to leave. It was a very scary thing, obviously the police were called, the man was arrested, but... He, uh, he went into the kitchen, he found a suspicious looking cabinet, he shot the lock off the cabinet and he opened it up and he found cooking supplies. And then he went around a corner where he thought was going to be the entrance to the basement and he found folks back there making pizza. And what he discovered is there's no pedophile ring in the basement of the Comet Ping Pong Pizza in D.C. In fact, there's no basement there at all. This was a weird thing and it, would, and it actually happened because... Um, of a rumor that was started, and it was started on Facebook that Hillary Clinton is running this pedophile ring in the basement of a pizza joint, and this guy believed it. It started as a rumor on Facebook. It became what we now call like fake news, and, and various groups of people started believing it, and including this guy who actually took some action for it, and it could have been, uh, it could have been much worse. It could have been very deadly, and I, and I was thinking about this, about this process of rumors that we hear and fake news, which has become very popular in our culture in the last decade or so, although it's probably always been around, right? But there's this idea that, that this unknown thing becomes kind of a rumor and then it becomes fake news and then people actually take action on it and do something about it. This has been going on really throughout all of history. If you go back to the early Christians, I was looking at uh, some of the beliefs that Christians held 2,000 years ago that we still believe today, but how those beliefs were thought of in the ancient world. The, the early Christians lived in the Roman Empire, and the Christians lived in a way that was countercultural. They, they believed things that the average Roman citizen did not believe, which is good, because if you're a Christian today and you believe things the average American does not believe, that's okay. That's good. It has always been that way, and it always should be. There's things that we're going to align ourselves with. There's things we're going to uh, understand and believe and teach and follow that will just look different than whatever country we live in and at whatever age we live in. That, that's okay. Well, the early Christians had some things uh, that the Roman Empire did not understand. The Christians believed there are no other gods except Jesus, that, that God the Father and Jesus the Son, that this is God in the flesh, Jesus is God in the flesh, and there are no other gods. Now, to the Romans, this was weird, because the Romans believed there are lots of gods. You've heard about them. you studied them, like Roman and Greek mythology, like Apollo and Zeus and Artemis, and, uh, and the, these, these are the gods, and they had temples, large buildings built to worship those gods, and the Christians come along, and they're like, all of that is fake. 
There are no gods like that. There's only Jesus. So the early rumor about the Christians is that that they were atheists, that they believed in no gods. You can see how they got there. It's not true, though. They believed in a God. They just didn't believe in all of those others. So you can see how people said that. But the rumor starts and it becomes fake news or whatever. It becomes this this thing that kind of flies flies around. Um, The Christians used to meet underground. Uh, They'd meet in the catacombs, especially when persecution came on the early church. And they'd meet in catacombs in different places. And they'd have these secret meetings And whenever you have secret meetings and people hear about it or get a sense of it, they want to know what's going on in there, and they start assuming things that are going on in there. So one of the things that the early Romans believed the Christians were doing in their secret gatherings, and you can read this. I actually looked up an account of of an ancient ruler writing to another leader and describing what the Christians were doing. What they believed was going on is that Christians were sacrificing babies and drinking their blood. This is good for Halloween. This is going to be a a good, this is what they believe, that the Christians are actually sacrificing babies and drinking their blood. And I thought, that's crazy that they would think that. Why why would they think that Christians are are drinking babies' blood when they get, get together? I think that's really odd. Who would believe such a thing? Except... One of my good friends told me that his father-in-law has been telling him over the last year that there are people in Hollywood and Joe Biden who are drinking baby's blood currently. And I just thought, this is really interesting how these things happen. Also, what's the deal with the baby's blood? Why are we so into that? This is really, really weird. And it's got a long, a long history. Um, and there, so, so there are some sources that would say that Christians in the early gatherings, they were cannibals. And you can kind of see how they say it. They're, they got this, and there's these descriptions that they would write of this is what Christians do when they come together and they eat and they, they sacrifice and they drink this blood and they, they believe that Christians were cannibals. And it's, it's really, really weird. But you see how they got there because when the Christians actually came together, they celebrated this thing called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. And in that, they celebrated Jesus, and they said they would take bread and wine, and they would say, this is the body and blood of Christ, and we're going to eat the body of Christ, and we're going to drink the blood of Christ. And you could see that if you weren't in those meetings and you just heard about it, you would be like, that's a little weird what they got going on in there. Why are you eating the body and blood? Like, it's an, it's an odd thing, right? This is how the rumors started flying, but that's actually what the Christians were doing. They were... They were um, celebrating communion whenever they came together. Um, the communion was, from its beginning, kind of controversial, kind of weird, kind of different. Um, and, and it was an odd thing. And the church in Corinth, we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians this year, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth did a lot of things really excessive and really wrong and weird. And it's for our sake, it's good that they did because Paul writes a letter to correct what they're doing. And when Paul writes it and says, you're doing this, you should be doing this, it helps inform us thousands of years later of what is good belief and practice around these things. So one of the things we, we, we talked about men and women's roles uh, last week, and this week I want to talk to you about this body and blood idea because they were doing that weirdly as well, and there were some problems going on uh, there. We called this series cringeworthy because particularly in chapters 11 through 14, um, there's just some religious things going on in the worship when they would gather together and the way they interacted as a church that when you hear about it, you're like, Ugh, that's kind of awkward. As modern Americans, this stuff sounds pretty odd to us. And this was one of those 
those things. They're, they're gathering together to celebrate the body and blood of Christ, and so we can learn something from it. So I want to I take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're picking up, we're going to be going through chapter 14 right before Advent, so right up until about Thanksgiving, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take you through. Um, and, you, and there's some good stuff in there. One of the most famous chapters in the Bible that's always read at weddings and stuff. We'll hit that in two weeks. Um, there, there's some good stuff there. But listen to what the, they do with communion when they would gather. Uh, we'll start with verse 17 of chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. All right. So Paul is being actually a little bit sarcastic, and, and I had to look at different commentators. I was like, man, it seems like he's being a little sarcastic. Is that true? Uh, and, and some commentators will say, no, this isn't sarcasm, but it's not that far out for Paul, uh, unlike Paul, to do this in some of his letters, where he'll be a little sarcastic, and he says, hey, when you guys are coming together, um, I hear that there's some divisions, and I believe it, and he basically says, because there has to be divisions among you guys, otherwise, how are you going to prove who's better? Like, you guys always, we're always doing this, and that actually makes a lot of sense to me if you've ever been around, I want to say religious groups, but it's not just religious, and I'll get to that in a second. But if you look at religious groups, um, there is this idea of I'm holy, and I'm more holy than you. And all the people who are truly holy are going to be like me, and they're going to do it this way. And it becomes this cliquish sort of insider language of I'm doing it even more right than you. I'm holier than thou, right? Like I, you're kind of doing it wrong. I'm doing it better. I know we're all doing this together, but I'm going to prove that I'm better. Like you see that kind of thing um, go on all the time. And this is especially true in times of prosperity. Like if the church is persecuted, if religious groups are persecuted, you don't have time to get into this nonsense. You don't have time to get into I'm holier than you because you're just trying to live and survive and survive under the persecution. You, you can't spend all your energy proving how awesome you are. You're just glad to be alive and glad to be there. But in times of prosperity, the church has often fallen into this trap of I'm going to prove how holy I am. You see it in the early church. There was martyrs and, and a lot of persecution in the early church. But then as things went on in the next couple centuries, once Christianity became very well accepted in the Roman Empire and kind of the mainstream religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity was no longer persecuted. So then you had the development of like the desert fathers. You had people who would leave the cities and they would move out to the desert and they would develop their faith and they would become like the monks and they would deny themselves food and, and everything and it, it, they would try to get really extreme because you used to be able to just die for Jesus to prove how, long, how, how devoted you were. Now you actually had to not die for Jesus because people weren't getting martyred anymore. You had to live for Jesus and how do you prove that you're really doing it right? Well, you could separate yourselves and become super holy and do really odd stuff and there's some really odd stories of what people did back then, but you, you, you see it. They, they break into factions to prove how holy they are. This is, uh, this is true um, in religious circles. It's true in non-religious circles. I, I think we've seen that over the, the, the past year or, or two in, in our culture. Sometimes I read things in the Bible, and I'm like, man, people were really uptight and really weird about some things. Like, why would they get so hung up on this, and why are they trying to prove to everybody how holy they are? Things like that. And then I see the secular equivalent in our culture today, and I realize, oh, people just do this. 
People just uh, find a way to signal the virtue, find a way to show that I'm doing it right, you're doing it wrong, we're all trying to do this together, but I've got it more right than you. And, and people, people just naturally just try to stack themselves up against other people and, and prove that they're, they're better. And this was going on in the church, and it was going on during communion, um, which was a, a mess. And so there, you've got these factions of people within the church of Corinth trying to prove themselves holy. Um, and, and that's the opposite of what should be happening in the church. The church should be, and, and, and churches are, uh, this level playing field. It's not about you're rich and you're poor and young or old or from different social classes. Like, all of us come together and we are all equals before the Lord. That's, that's the idea. Um, we are all sinners saved by grace. Uh, we're not supposed to be I'm better than you and, and any of that kind of stuff. We should be equal here within, within the body of Christ. And so there's these cliques forming, these factions forming. Paul calls them out. And then in verse 20, he says this. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So when the church came together for communion and worship, yes, they'd have bread and juice and bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Christ, but they would have a whole meal with us. It's a Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a gathering, a fellowship sort of meal. And apparently what's going on in Corinth is that you know, everybody brings their food from home, and you've got really wealthy people who have lots of food, and then you've got poor people who have basically none. And then rather than that being a big time of sharing, what's going on is the wealthy people pull out all their food, eat their food, and then they're done, and, they, and they're gone, and, and they're, or they're partying too much or whatever with all that they've got, and then the poor people kind of sit by and they have nothing. And Paul's looking at this and going, what should be this leveler of time, this meal where we all come together, where we're all one, a unified body? You're taking even that and you're making it this, this divisive thing that some of you are partying and some of you are having nothing, and this is not the way it should be when we come together. So he calls them out for that. Um, for, for handling communion, even in the communion gathering, they're handling it so poorly. So what is it about? What actually are we doing? Because we take communion at this church, and we'll do it here in a, in a few minutes. We take it every week as a church. What are we doing when we do it, and why does it even matter now, you know, thousands of years after Jesus instituted it for us? Um, I, I, there's four things, I think, going on with communion when we take it. Number one, communion helps us remember the past. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I want to put this up on the screen. For this is how he describes communion to the church. For, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he, when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he also he took the cup and, and gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So part of the idea when we take communion, bread and juice, we remember Jesus. We remember what he's done. We remember that Jesus was actually real, a real man who walked the earth, and he was actually God in the flesh, and he, and he really died on a cross, and he really died for our real sins. And we, and we celebrate that by, by eating the, the bread, which represents the body of Christ, his broken body on the cross, and drinking the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. 
Now, when Jesus first instituted this, it was at the, the, what we call the Last Supper, on the night that he was betrayed, as Paul references there. He's gathering with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem in this, in this place, and they're coming together, and they're celebrating Passover together. Now, this was a Jewish idea. The, the, the Passover uh, meal that they would celebrate was referring back to uh, something at that point was about 1,400 years that had happened prior to that. Um, the, the Israelites had been enslaved for hundreds of years as, as slaves in Egypt, and, and, and God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And so uh, if, you've, if you know the story, if you've read Exodus, you know how that sort of went. If you've seen the movies about it that they've made or whatever, you know that Moses approaches Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and, 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 uh, and Pharaoh doesn't, and, and these plagues come upon Egypt, that God sends these plagues to try to get uh, Pharaoh to release the slaves. And eventually, the, 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 last, the last plague is the, this death of the firstborn, where this death angel is going to pass over Egypt. And the Israelites, the way they were saved, the way their children were saved from this death angel is they put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of their house. So they put this blood of the lamb when the death angel passed over the city, saw the blood of the lamb on the house and didn't go anywhere near those homes, and then went in and, and killed the firstborn of the other, of the other homes. And so they wake up in the morning, all these, all these children are dead. Like, it's a really horrific, hard story. I don't have time to get into all the details of that. I did a whole sermon on it. There's a lot to talk about there. But it was this idea that because there was blood of a lamb on your doorpost, you were saved, and, that, and, then, and then the next day, the Israelites were able to be freed from slavery. Um, so it was this, this powerful story, and God commanded them to remember this in a Passover celebration. So the Jews would do this every year. They would come together, and they would celebrate Passover. They would have a meal together. They would have a lamb there. They would talk about um, the bread that their people ate in the wilderness, and they'd talk about the blood on the doorpost and all of that and what God did and how God delivered them. It was a way to these physical elements that would remind them every year, this is what God has done. It's a way to remember your history, where you came from. It was a powerful thing. Well, Jesus celebrates that meal with his disciples, and he takes the bread and, 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 and wine that would, that would represent the blood of the Passover lamb and all those kind of ideas, and he reinterprets those, that, those things for them in the moment and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And he's basically saying, I'm the lamb that is shed for you, I'm the reason you are going to be saved and you will be set free. Um, it, it all, actually, all of history runs through, through me. Um, he, he tells them that his death will save them, basically. Now, that sounds really odd for us, the idea of blood sacrifice, any of that kind of thing. And, and there's, there's history and, and background to that because we don't do blood sacrifices in our culture, right? Like, it's weird, it's ancient, it sounds very... If not Jewish, it sounds like um, Aztec and other kind of things. It just it conjures up images of like shamans and priests sticking their hand into the heart and pulling people's hearts out. And just weird, right? If, at least if you've seen the Indiana Jones movie, that's where it goes for you. It's where it goes for me. Um, but here's the deal. Um, when you and I sin, and, and, and we, we create a, a rift, it creates problems in the world. Um, we sin against other people. If I tell a lie, I've now created a problem between you and I. You see me as less trustworthy, or maybe I lied about you or something like that. So it creates a problem between you and I, and we're both bearers of the image of God. There's a problem there. It creates a problem between us and God because I've, I've hurt another person or, or caused a problem with another person, and, and that is God's child, so I have a problem with my heavenly Father. There's issues there. Some sins I can commit are against myself, 
uh, against my own body when I treat it poorly or I allow things to come into it that are not good. You know, so there's sin um, is not like a victimless crime. Like it, it, there's stuff that comes along with that. And so when we sin, um, it needs to be dealt with in some way. Uh, you can't just wipe it away. You can't just be like, ah, it's no big deal. Even when we say it's no big deal, it's still a deal. It's still something. There's still something going on. So there's this system that God put in place for the Israelites where an animal would take the place of their sin. So you have sinned. The sin of the nation is passed through the priest's hands onto this animal on the Day of Atonement. This One day a year, the, the sins of the people come. They slaughter the animal. They send one animal away into the wilderness. It's this kind of idea of like your sin is being passed on here and being paid for and dealt with. And there is a blood sacrifice of an animal in your place. This animal die, will die so you don't have to. Now, all that may seem gross and weird, but keep in mind, this is an object lesson. This is a very visceral picture of what is going on, and you couldn't walk away from that without feeling like, oh, my sin is serious, like there's something actually going on here. Someone is really, there's something really gone wrong here. Someone is harmed when I, when I sin. Like, it, it should impress upon you the, the seriousness of sin. And so there would be this blood sacrifice sacrificial system. And Jesus comes along and and in in the body and, and blood in this in this communion in this Lord's Supper thing, he and then his and then his sacrifice on the cross, he does away with that system. He does away with animals are sacrificed to, to cover your sin. And he basically says, I'm the Lamb of God who was slain for you. Jesus dies on the cross and the New Testament tells us his Sacrifice on the cross covers your sin and my sin once and for all. That means uh, the lie you told this week is covered by Jesus on the cross. The porn you looked at, uh, that, that is covered by Jesus on the cross. The, the times you got super arrogant this week um, and prideful, that is covered by Jesus' blood on the cross. The anger that rose up in you, it is covered by Jesus' blood on the cross. And so when we take communion, which we will in just a moment, when we take communion, we remember that Jesus covered this, that all the things that I'm doing, have done, the ways I've blown it, messed up, broken relationships, all those things, Jesus has covered that. He has dealt with it uh, by his blood. The second thing communion does is communion connects us to God. Now, this is a little bit weird or maybe kind of a cringeworthy thing about it, but let me see if I can explain it to you. Part of the reason the early Christians were thought of as cannibals is because Jesus almost leads us there with some of the things he said. In fact, at the height of his popularity, when there's crowds flocking to him, Jesus says some really awkward, cringeworthy things, including this from John chapter 6. Listen to what he says and look at how people reacted to it when he said it. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He's referring back to the Exodus that I was talking about. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Reasonable question for the kind of thing Jesus is saying, right? You're like, that's super weird, Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue, so in the church, right, as he taught them at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Big understatement from, from his followers, right? Just when it's getting good, Jesus is healing people, people are healed of leprosy, the crowds are flocking. If you're one of Jesus' closest followers, you're like, this guy has it, man. He has got the it factor. Everything's happening. Crowds are flocking. We are starting the movement. This is amazing. And Jesus stands up in front of that whole crowd and is like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it, talk about cringeworthy. A crowd of people, and you see this later on, several, many of them bail at this point. They're like, Oh, awkward. Okay, Jesus, I was with you when you said the golden rule. That was nice. Can you go back to that? I like that part where you said love your neighbor as yourself. That was really cool. It feels like kindness. It's like, it's really sweet. It's really good. Can we just do that? And Jesus is like, nah, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone's going like, ah, I don't, um, okay, that's really, that's really weird, right? But I wonder if those same disciples who heard him say that, then you, you fast forward to this Lord's Supper, this, this last meal they have together, and he says, this is my body and this is my blood when he's having this bread and, and, and wine in this, in this meal together. I wonder if they were like, oh, that's what he was talking about when he was saying, eat my flesh and, and drink my blood. He was talking about this thing. Um, he wants us to, he doesn't want us to literally eat his flesh. A lot of scholars have pointed and said, no, there's a deeper meaning here going on. What he wants us to do is internalize his message so it becomes part of us. Just like when you eat food, it becomes part of you. You are what you eat is what we say, right? Um, in, In the same way, when we take communion, there's a sense that his message and who he is becomes a part of us as as we do that. Um, it, It might actually be helpful to think of the term remember. If you think of the term remember him, we think that means call to mind something that happened in the past. Remember that day? Oh yeah, I can call to mind the thing that happened on that day. But remember is to member again, put something, think of the opposite would be, and this is good for Halloween, dismember. So if you dismember something, you are cutting something off, right? What was part is now being removed. Your head, your arm, whatever, it's been dis- you've been dismembered. This, part, this thing that was part of you is now removed. So to remember is to take the thing that was removed and put it back in, sort of graft it back in to become part of the whole again. This is what happens when we remember at communion. We are connecting to God. We are taking him in and saying, uh, I, I, I remember, I'm, I'm bringing you in. I am feeding on you your, your, your teaching. Um, it's more like bringing his spirit again into our, our bodies. This is a little mystical, right? The Catholics teach that, um, 
the body and the, the bread and, and wine become the literal body and blood of Christ when they take communion. It's, they, they go very literal with that. So you, and so they're, they're very careful with it. If you've ever seen a Catholic priest handle the bread and, and the wine, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal what they do with it. The Protestants say it's a little more metaphorical, that they're saying, no, no, it's, it's not literally the body and blood. And, and I would actually argue for that position because when Jesus stands at this meal with them and gives them bread and wine and he says, take and eat, this is my body, this is my blood. It can't literally be his body and blood because he's standing right there. Like, he's still in the room, right? Like, his body and blood is already there in him, but he's saying these things are going to, they're going to represent that. And so um, there's this connection that we have um, where when we take communion, we're not just remembering what Jesus did, but we're taking him in it and we're connecting to God now um, in, in, in these elements. The third thing that communion does is communion connects us to each other. There's this commonality that we have where we share the same meal, where we all um, eat this thing together. And this is a beautiful thing. No matter your background, it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how young you are, how old you are, what ethnic background you come from, what your family's like, your, your history, your social class. Like, those things don't matter when we take this together. It's basically like we are all in this thing together. We are all the same. Um, we, 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 take this, we take from the same bread and the same cup. Now, taking from the same bread and same cup was easier prior to COVID, right? That's change the game a little bit in churches all over the place. I mean, I, I've heard churches really struggling with like, you know those churches where like, um, where you'd come forward and they'd have like a cup and everybody drinks from that same cup? Did, did anyone feel like that was a little weird anyway prior to, like, like I don't know what the person just had their mouth and you wipe that off with that cloth. Like, I don't know how good that cloth is. You know what I mean? Like, there were already challenges, right? And we, the way we did it here, we had one loaf of bread and you'd break it off and you'd dip in some juice. A little, little different. Um, you're not all sipping out of the same cup, but th- th- there's some challenges there. But I love the image of it that we all come to this same thing um, and, and we, are, we are unified. Um, we're making the best of it right now as we can. But I think there's value in, in remembering that we're all in this together because we are living in a culture that is splintering apart. Um, we, we are not incredibly unified uh, as a nation. Certainly, uh, you know, what is there left to unify us? We're not unified around our politics. We're not even unified about what the goals of our politics should be. We're not unified around our government. Um, we don't get weepy and excited about the land of the free and the home of the brave and all those kind of things that we, that, that at least my generation was taught as kids. And, and, um, we aren't unified around our ideologies. We're not unified around social media, the internet. I don't know what unifies us. Uh, sports, I don't know. But that becomes, I mean, lots of people seem to go to a stadium and cheer for a game, so I guess they can get behind that thing. But there's so much division there as well, right? There, there's not many unifying things in culture. And I think um, that seems bad and it seems like we're splintering, but the truth is we've always been tribal uh, throughout history. There's always been distrust, and there's been my group and your group, and there's the in, the in people and the out people. Um, and in communion, what we see is people coming together. Um, all of us eat that bread and drink that juice and take it into our bodies. And it's just a reminder that I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who believes in this Jesus thing. I'm not the only one who believes in God like this. I believe this. You believe it. Um, no matter 
what my political views are, and the truth is those political views matter less than this, than this thing where we come together and we're unified here. We have a common humanity when we take communion. All of us together are all sinners in need of grace and, and all worshiping God together. And I think in that way, communion, this common union, it, 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 it connects us to God and it connects us to each other. And then finally, so there's this past, remembering the past, there's this present connecting to God and each other. And then there's a future aspect of communion. Communion points us to a hopeful future. Listen to the way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 11. Again, uh, look at verse 26. He says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This idea that whenever we take communion, we're saying Jesus died for my sins, and we're going to do that out into the future until he comes. What is he referring to? The end of the Bible talks about it this way. Revelation 19, there is a gathering of the church. Uh, there's a gathering of believers in heaven, this new heaven, this new earth. Um, and listen to the way this is described, Revelation 19, verse, um, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I love that the image of the future um, that we get in, from, from Revelation is it's this marriage party. The, the bride of Christ, which is the church, the saints, the, the followers of God, uh, are gathered together with Jesus and God in in the flesh, in person, all together for a massive uh, meal. And that's great because, honestly, a great meal with, with great people, it would be of great company and great food and the sights and smells, that's, that's a, almost as good as it gets, right? Like, it's, it's, that's the good stuff in life. It's so good. And, and I love the idea that there's going to be this meal coming where, where we will be with Christ and, and we will, yes, we will have bread and wine and all of the other things, and it'll be a celebration. And it is a meal where we will be full, you'll be satisfied when you eat, not because you've eaten all the food, but because Revelation uh, later tells us that in that time there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. That's a beautiful thing. We're gonna eat a satisfied meal of not just the food is good, but the relationships are right, and there's no more pain and struggle and death and hurt. Um, God has wiped those things away, and I think that's going to be incredible because there's so much pain here. There's so much sorrow in our world, and I think this increases as we get older. We just see so much of it. I, I, I know of two people, one in my extended family and one... Uh, in, in the church who, uh, who lost their parents this week, just this week. Um, and, it, and it was just a reminder. It's when sort of death breaks in uh, to, your, to your regular life and you start thinking about eternity and you start thinking about what's coming. And so communion, when you take it, um, it's almost like an hors d'oeuvre, uh, that, that point that you take as you remember and think about the future meal, the future bliss. 
So communion, when we gather as a church, is central. When you come here, you don't know what songs we're going to sing. You don't necessarily know what the message is going to be about. All that, all that stuff changes. But what you do know is that at some point, we will take bread and juice and remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That is central to our, to our worship, and it always has been. It, we're not uh, cannibals. We're not atheists. It's not any of the weird rumors and fake news that flies around. This is, this is what's going on. Um, the body and blood of Christ, these things help root us in, in the grand story. They remind us where we came from. Uh, we remember uh, where we came from. We're reminded that we are not an accident in this world. We're reminded that we are worth dying for. We're reminded that God loves us in spite of our sin. And, and we are connected to one another as we take this. And we, and we look out to our ultimate future. And, and we, we were reminded that our, our lives have trajectory and meaning and purpose and destiny. And that all of this is going somewhere. So we're going to take communion uh, together now. And, and the way we're going to do it is the band's going to come out. And they're going to lead us in a song. And I want you to come forward and, and grab the, the communion cup. Um, you go out the left of your aisle and down the front. But normally we just say take that as you're ready. But what I want you to do this time is to take that cup and take it back to, um, to your seat. And then I'll come out and I'll, I'll read the scripture again. And we will just take it all together, a, a, a common union. We will all take this bread and juice together and, and celebrate that um, as a community. So let me, let me pray and then you can stand and then we will sing together. And, uh, and then I'll come back out and we'll take communion together. Uh, let, let's, let's stand together. Lord, I thank you for your son who died for us. And as we take communion today, we want to take him uh, and his teaching, his message, his spirit in us and remember him. And, and in this, we are united with you. We are united with each other. Um, and all that can be weird, but I, I pray, God, that it's not, that we just go, no, this is, this is good, and this is life in the kingdom of God. This is what it is to be the people of God, is to, to remember this and, and to celebrate it. So, God, we sing now, we lift our voices, we, we hold our communion elements, and we will take them together to honor you. Thank you, Lord, for your son dying for us, ridding us of the sacrificial system, paying for our sins, and making us right with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.